Hello, welcome to Conversations with T. Needs no introduction, is Andrew Nack, and he's joined us to take some questions. Um, good morning, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here again. I'm just really curious, um, day two of the budget, what are your immediate reactions to yesterday's um, surplus budget? Um, I mean, the disappointment uh, is is there. I, I feel like I've moved beyond sort of that anger and frustration because what what I guess astonishes me the most at this stage is that um, the city of Edmonton only had four sort of bare minimum masks, and we didn't really have any of them met. And the one that still bothers me the most is when it comes to housing, because here's something that what we've been asking for for years now is for the provincial government to fund the operations of permanent supportive housing, which to be clear is their jurisdiction. So this is actually what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and the city, we said, we're going to actually build units of permanent supportive housing ourselves, which typically isn't our jurisdiction. But we said, let's do it because we know how important housing is. We have too many of our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness right now. So we went an, ahead and said, let's build these units. And all we need the province to do is fund the operations. And, and then we could be helping hundreds of some of the hardest to house people. And what, what I think is surprising to me still is that we have the data now. There's a, there's a, a, a wonderful building called Ambrose Place which is home um, to about 50 individuals, uh, some of which had you know, been dealing with some fairly significant challenges, whether it's mental health challenges, whether it's addictions. And what we found from Ambrose Place is that when you provide proper supportive housing, where you have 24 seven wraparound care and support, most importantly, you help the people, you can actually save lives. But on top of that, you actually save money because when people are getting the right care and attention they need, they're not sitting in our hospital beds 200 nights a year. And, and to be very clear, I'm not exaggerating that number. We've actually measured this to know that some of these individuals were in hospital beds 200 nights a year at $1,500 a night because they didn't have a place to go and the right care around them. When they had it, they didn't have to go to hospital beds. And so the data shows that permanent supportive housing saves lives and would actually save the province money. And so in this budget, they didn't even have to increase their budget and they could have saved hundreds more lives and yet they still didn't. And so it, it's that's why I'm confused because this the provincial government through their actions are showing in my mind that they just truly don't care about helping sort of our most vulnerable. And I think, you know, when you talk about having a surplus, it's one thing to have a budget that's in surplus. But when you have people living on the street, is that is that the time to be celebrating a budget surplus? Or should you be saying we need to we could have still had a budget that broke even instead of a five hundred and eleven million dollar surplus? What if you took that five hundred and eleven million still had a break even budget and helped those who need the most supports? That to me is what we should be doing as a society, not saying, well, we've got a surplus, but that's on the backs of those who need the most care. And, uh, and so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed to see 
yet again, uh, a lack of, of response and a lack of acknowledgement that there are serious issues that we are dealing with, not just in Edmonton, but across this province that aren't being dealt with. Um, and at this stage, I have no idea why they're making that choice because it is a choice they are actively making. Andrew, is it too early for the city to find, um, to begin to think of how to get the money you want, the 49.7 million towards the construction of 552 supporting housing units? Is there like a plan B to find that money? I mean, you know, I, I, I started to think about this um, within the last year, which is that I, I do think it was time. I, I, I'm happy the city invested 30 million of our own money to build a little over 200 units of, of supportive housing, all the way to the point that I would be willing, while still not within our jurisdiction, to fund the construction of the remaining 500 units. Like I, I, I would be willing to take that off the provincial government's plate, that capital cost of building the units if they would just agree to doing the part that we can't do on their behalf, which is funding the operations. So I think we could, as a city, go to the federal government, because to, I'll give this federal government credit, they have done an, an excellent job of finally responding to the housing needs in this country. Um, we're not perfect. <laughs> we still need we still need some more, as you talked about, the 500 plus units that we need. But I, I get a sense that this federal government is willing to be an active partner to truly ending homelessness for those who need the greatest support. So I think between the city and the federal government, we could fund the rest of those units. We just need the province to then do their part and fund operations, which, again, would actually not cost them any net new money. They would save money on their healthcare system. So... Uh, I think we can figure out the construction. We just need a partner, a willing partner to help do the operations. Is it true that, uh, I'm not quite sure if I got this on your Twitter feed, that um, the UCP government um, put more money into Calgary because that's where their base is at? Because looking at the budget targeted for Calgary, there's just a lot more money than the five million or so they gave to downtown Edmonton. And you know, I, I don't like being cynical. Um, you know, I, I spent most of my eight years uh, on council um, thinking the best. And, and, and I, I should say the vast majority of people, I still give the benefit of the doubt because I do believe that most people want to work together to be collaborative, to solve issues. Uh, I, I don't believe that's the case with this provincial government. And it pains me to say that. But I, I think at this point, it's clear because, you know, Mayor Sohi went out of his way to try to develop a strong working relationship. While I think we already had evidence over the last two years, three years or so, that, that maybe we didn't have a willing partner, our, our new mayor said, I'm going to make an effort. I'm going to extend that olive branch. I'm going to go to them and say, let's work together to deal with these complex issues, because if Edmonton is successful, then the province is successful. So I give him so much credit for trying and work and 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 going into it with an open mind. I, I, I will say I didn't have a ton of faith, but I felt we needed to take that step. We needed to give him the chance to see if this provincial government was actually interested in working together. And this budget to me shows that they care about one thing, which is the, the, the next election. 
because yeah, let's be honest, they're probably not going to win any seats in Edmonton. I, I mean, I think that's pretty clear. And if they, if from a purely political perspective, by not investing anything in Edmonton, by not helping our most vulnerable, by not by not doing what I think we would expect of any provincial government, it says to me they've sort of given up on this city for the next year and a bit until the next election, and they're going to focus their time on Calgary and the rural areas to, because they can still get reelected as government if they win the rural areas and they win Calgary. They don't need Edmonton to form government as evidence as their current situation, and and that's hard for me to say because. I know there are good MLAs in that party. I know there are. I've met them. I've talked to them. Um, you know, I, I think about people like Cyril Turton, who uh, represents an area just west of, of the ward that I represent. And, and he represents the, my hometown of Spruce Grove. And, and I know he has that passion and desire to help. Um, but that's clearly not evident from the vast majority of them. You know, where, where is our lone Edmonton MLA in this? How did that budget get approved without our Edmonton MLA from the UCP saying, listen, you're not responding to any of Edmonton's needs. You're not working together with the mayor who has gone out of his way to work with you. Um, it, it shows to me. I mean, I know he's on sort of leave at the moment, but I mean, here's a minister who has the direct ear of the premier literally didn't go to bat for the city that he represents. And I cannot understand why the, oh. the role of an MLA is not to defend the party. The role of the MLA is to work, to bring forward the, the voices of the, the writings that they represent. Uh, yet we exist in this political system, and it's an issue provincially and frankly federally too. I mean, it's a, it's this partisan system that puts the party before the people, and that was so evident in this last provincial budget. Okay, so where are you going to find emergency money? Where are you going to get the emergency operating financial support for the transit system? I know this is high on the, the mayor's list. Where's that money going to come from now? You know, so, you know, we we built and approved our budget back in December, assuming we weren't going to get anything. So fortunately, even if we don't get access to what would be $62 million in funds to help us deal with other important priorities, yeah. our budget actually doesn't require us to get that. Again, it's it's very odd because the federal government is willing to give the city of Edmonton, 31 million. They just wanted to make sure the province is a willing partner. And this budget showed that the province doesn't want to take $31 million of federal funding. Yeah. And, and this is a province that constantly, the provincial government that constantly talks about, oh, we need a fair deal. We need a fair deal for Alberta. Well, a fair deal is taking advantage of the funds that the federal government makes available to address real needs. So while we don't need it, if, if that funding had come in, the, we could, with that money alone, could build almost every other unit of supportive housing that we need. Oh. We could potentially be done within a year of all permanent supportive housing units if that money came in. And that might not be where we put the money, but that's just an example of how that kind of money could be put to use if the provincial government decided to come meet with us and, and work with us. 
Andrew, I don't know too much about politics, but what I know is Mr. Justin Trudeau has Edmonton um, in the right place, in the right corner of his heart. When I look at the dynamics, um, the mayor is, 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 is from the party, so it's pulling all the strings he can. And um, the provincial um, uh, uh, premier is not, doesn't like Mr. Trudeau at all. So, uh, you know, he's even taking Mr. Trudeau to court about the emergency act. So he tells me, um, I don't know, Let, let's get back into this interview. Sure. Um, You've gone past 100 days, and this is your eighth year, you just said. When you look back, what are some of the legislative accomplishments you can attribute to? We're a little over 100 days now, 121 days maybe? Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> you know something uh, like that. I'm good. So I'm glad someone's keeping track of these. Uh, days. <laughs> I have nothing else to do. <laughs> managing everyone. You know what? I, I think there's... Um, I, I give this council a lot of credit. They have been dealing with some incredibly complex issues. I, I truly don't think I've been busier in the last, in this last sort of six to eight weeks period. I don't think I've been busier this time than I have any time in my last eight years. So for this new council, which is made up of so many new people, they are handling this uh, in a, uh, incredibly thoughtful ways. So I look to our budget where we saw a major uh, investment in a lot of different social programs and services uh, that are going to help those who need some of the greatest supports. Um, I saw, and yet, you know, a, a council that even with all of that money that we invested into these important programs and significant capital projects, new rec centers, um, uh, as an example, we still managed to keep our budget uh, as one of the lowest increases uh, in the region, if not the lowest increase in the region and the lowest of the major Canadian cities. So here's a council that has shown the ability to invest in these important critical services while also keeping costs down. So that was a major significant uh, accomplishment, I think, by this council in the last 100 days. I think from there, we, and, and this is one of the topics you wanted to talk about, but the anti-racism strategy is a, uh, I think, significant leap forward. Uh, I don't think there's any city doing anything quite like this. And uh, obviously, approving a strategy is one piece, and then implementing that is something entirely right. different. But I have a lot of hope from what the conversations around this strategy, uh, you know, when we had the committee meeting last week and the council meeting this week on it, uh, I, I have great hope and I have a great sense that the community is, is in this together to work on this very serious issue. So that, I think, is a massive uh, accomplishment for this council and, uh, and will provide likely a model for other cities across this country and, and hopefully across the world and how you tackle something as, as important as anti-racism. Yes, Andrew, uh, this takes us into an important segment. Actually, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the anti-racism strategy. It excites me as a person, but I've been to um, city council several times. How do you implement this thing when city council is white? Well, and, and I think it's a great question, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I try to recognize that I come from a very different lived experience than many other folks in the city. Um, and I think the way you do it 
is by making sure that when you're creating the strategy, which is how it was done, you are empowering those voices who have had those lived experiences to say, here's how you do the work. It wasn't people who look like me saying, here's how we're going to solve racism in the city, because we clearly have not done uh, everything that needed to be done on this front. Uh, now, there's, there's a fine line, because the last thing you want to do is force um, people of color to solve all the problems that were created by folks with a different uh, perspective, folks who have come from a background like mine. Um, but at the same point, you need to make sure that when people of color are speaking and telling you, here's how you might best solve this, that you take that very seriously and you don't try to say, well, what if we tweak it this way? We took the strategy which was created, which had some very clear recommendations, and we accepted them all. We accepted that strategy and we're going to invest in that strategy. And it was created by the entire community. It was not created by a handful of people who are all folks who are white, who haven't had lived experiences of racism. Um, it was created by a diverse range of people. Andrew, I, I was on that um, Zoom. I, you know, it took all day and I, my profound respect for what you guys do just blew out the roof. Like it took all day from breakfast to dinner time. I had a headache, but was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? All oh, my time is going. But was really what struck me was it was detailed. It was intense. The work that Shalini Sinha is doing is commendable, and everybody had their input. And for the first time, I met the city manager. Is very sensitive guy. He knows how to balance things out. Wise man. It was interesting for me as an outsider looking in. My question, though, what do you say to people who say two million is too much of an investment to spend on anti-racism? It is a lot of money for something you're not sure about, for something that is new in this city? I, I think we have uh, historical issues that we need to deal with in this city, from reconciliation to a history of the city. I mean, gosh, there, there's, there's points in time in the city's history where essentially the Ku Klux Klan endorsed a mayoral candidate who ultimately won so that and then provided the opportunity for them to do cross burnings. I mean, this wow. is this is our history as a city. Wow. Um, this is what we were part of what we were founded on. And yes, there were many great people in the past too. But but I mean, gosh, we had mayors who had some of that experience in their life. So I mean, in a budget of about three billion dollars a year, which is what our operating budget is, to spend. $2 million of that $3 billion on this, I think is a drop in the bucket for what I think we'll probably need to invest over time. I think 2 million is a great starting point, but it probably won't be enough to deal with every issue that we have to deal with. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've heard from some folks who have said, oh, like, why are you investing this kind of money in anti-racism? Because we still have, even in 2022, substantial issues. I mean, we just had a nationwide protest that where some of the organizers of that protest have been very vocal about their views 
on people of color and people of diverse backgrounds and said some very troubling things. You know, I, I think about one of the organizers who talked about how, you know, the federal liberal parties, it was infested with Islam. And so, you know, this was, these were the organizers of the nationwide protest. So if we don't think that there's still a very real issue about racism that we have to deal with, um, I think once you start to talk about that and acknowledge that reality still exists, two million is is in my mind a very small investment to make to start dealing with something in a very serious way. And again, this is the beginning of what will be a long journey. Uh, and I expect we'll need more money, but I am happy to defend that to anyone who thinks we haven't uh, that that we shouldn't be investing that kind of money because. As a society, we have so much to do to make sure we are truly equitable for everyone. I think what worries me, Andrew, is the implementation of all this. And I'm just concerned that I'm just thinking, how will stimulating healing and facilitating recovery for communities affected by AIDS-based violence, what would that even look like? How do you stimulate healing and facilitate recovery? What... I need healing. Heck, I'm a BIPOC woman. <laughs> what, what, what is, because it's so subjective, isn't it? I'll, I don't know. I find it really complicated. With, you know, but that's one outcome on your, you know. It, it's true. Some of these are hard to measure, but mm. that's not unique to what we deal with in municipal government. There are some things that are truly hard to measure that are just expected as a community, right? We, we, you know, it, we can talk about the health outcomes of having access to recreation. We can talk about mental health impacts of having access to green space and, and amenities. But even, even in those examples, it's hard to always directly correlate this specific dollar amount in recreation center investment produces this specific outcome to the health of, uh, health of our society and health of our city. There's, there's connecting lines, but it's not a one-to-one -one, uh, uh, comparison, right? So this issue, when we're talking about anti-racism, the same thing will be said. There's going to be things that are done here that we know will have an improvement in quality of life, but we're not always gonna be able to say this dollar produced this specific outcome. Uh, and I think if you, we should always try to do that. We should try to see if we can connect those dots as, as much as we can. But we also have to recognize that creating an equitable and just society is not something that's easily measured. It's not something that you can say, oh, to do that, you need to spend, you know, $10.75 million and you can have an equitable and just society. There's no way, there's no way that will happen. Um, so I think our goal is measure as much as we can, try to show that. And I think there are tools that we can use to measure those outcomes, but also don't be so focused exclusively on those dollars that you, um, that you end up missing the bigger picture. I'm going to give one other tangible example. We talk a lot in, in transit. We've talked a lot about, uh, as a city over the years, we, we focused almost exclusively on cost recovery, how much we get from the fares that come in. 
that was sort of our, our, our almost lone guiding metric that we used. But when you're thinking about the societal impact of transit, you should be focused on things more than just how much you recover from the fare. You should be thinking about, does this connect people in an efficient way to uh, educational and employment opportunities? Does this allow people to get easier access to the services and amenities they use? And you can't necessarily put an exact dollar amount on that, but I I think it would be hard to argue that transit doesn't have a a true value impact on people's lives, even if I can't say this dollar amount produces this exact income. Again, we should measure it where we can. We should keep track of the dollars, make sure we're, we're, you know, if we're doing a program, surveying those who have used the program to understand how they have felt and, and the impact of that program. But don't get caught up exclusively on saying, I need to know exactly how this dollar, what percentage this helped increase equity, because there's no way to properly do that. Okay, so is there, is there any talk, thanks, Andrew, is there any talk in finding a liaison person to coordinate advocating, um, increasing the sense of solidarity and connectedness because each BIPOC community has different needs. Uh, we've got Islamic sisters, uh, Somali, Ritharanganian, and, and we're all different. So at the, at the end of the day, is it just a committee or there'll be one person that would be working or a team of people working to increase the sense of solidarity and connectedness between all our diversities that's where it gets really complicated, doesn't it? One of the, the key recommendations from the strategy was the, was the creation of an independent anti-racism body. I and mean, this was based on the feedback that was being received through the engagement. Uh, so this came from the communities that are, are, uh, uh, were part of this day-to-day work. So I think this th- that is going to be the way to ensure that we are um, trying to, as best as we can, address the, the wide range of needs from the many different communities that exist. As you talked about, there's not just one set of needs for all BIPOC, uh, the, the entire BIPOC community. It is, it is a wide range of needs, and you need to have that body um, as representative as possible so that we're not missing gaps. Uh, so that we're we're trying our best to address the the range of needs that exist. So I think that's the the mechanism that uh, we would have, and that in combination with the group like our current anti-racism advisory committee, I think through that work of those bodies, we'll make sure we represent the needs of as many different people as possible. Andrew, LCC Media has been in this space since 2019. And we weren't even invited to any of those things. He says influencing all organizations and partners in Edmonton to create anti-racism strategies. And um, I don't know. I'm not quite sure our work is even effective enough. If important conversations are happening and we have to be finding where all these informations are. Um, what does it take to um, to be one of the organizations that would that be a partner with Edmonton, you know? You know, I think yeah. I think that the challenge was, you know, and when when Mayor Sohi made this as sort of the very first motion of this new council, he said, come back within 100 days, um, which 
as we probably all know, when you're dealing with complex topics, particularly something as complex as anti-racism and everything that's contained within that, a hundred days isn't enough to do everything you need to do to engage everyone that you need to engage. To invite LCC media. Sorry? To invite LCC media. Right, to to, to (laughs) invite everyone that probably needs to be at the table. and, and I, I'm always reminded of that saying, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Uh, and it's something I, I try to repeat to myself more often because um, I think sometimes we want to make sure that this, you know, for example, this strategy, if we had taken two years to do the strategy work um, before bringing it forward, you could probably be pretty close to perfect. I think it was in this case, this is an example of, it was better to create this strategy, recognizing no strategy that was ever gonna be created was truly gonna be perfect. It seems like based on the feedback that generally speaking, it's headed in the right direction. So I think it was better to do this in a more uh, condensed time frame. And then now that we have this, everyone needs to be engaged. There were, there were plenty of people and we heard some folks at the committee meetings say, we weren't really part of this engagement and we're ready. And just so you know, we want to be part of this going forward. But what I didn't hear in that is individuals come forward and say, even so I wasn't engaged and I don't think you should approve this strategy. What I heard more so was the strategy seems to be headed in the right direction. As you go forward, I want to make sure I'm part of this and we need to be part of this. That's what I heard from the public feedback, uh, which actually suggests to me that this was the right approach. We got, we, we have a good foundation to start on. And now LCC and everyone else needs to be at the table for this next phase of work, because there's a lot of work to do still um, to make sure it's being done right. Thank you, Andrew. The restriction exemption program has been off for a little bit. Um, I'm just wondering, Andrew, how, how did you vote and what do you think about it now? Was it a good call the, pro- the province made? And how long is the face mask mandate going to go on for um, in Edmonton? We'll start on the restriction exemption program. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the tough answer is I don't know if it was the right decision because none of us have the recommendations that Dr. Hinshaw made to the provincial government. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes it really hard to be as informed as we would like to be. Um, And hearing some of her press conferences when she was asked about it, she deferred answering to the Minister of Health, which sometimes saying nothing says quite a bit. And uh, I think we can all read between the lines and gather that that probably wasn't her recommendation uh, to take the action that they did. But because the province did it with essentially, you know, uh, you know, 12 hours notice um, or 24 hours notice. Uh, it, it meant that there was no easy way for a city to create their own restrictions exemption program, even if it was the right thing to do, which I personally think that probably would have been the right thing to do, but there was no way to implement something that quickly. So that leads to the face coverings bylaw, which is still within our control. And uh, the way our bylaw is currently worded is that it requires uh, that once the province removes their public health order related to masking, which we're expecting will likely happen on March 1st, and once 
the and it's very clear to say and once cases are below 100 per 100,000 people for 28 consecutive days, then that is when council is supposed to review the bylaw within 30 days of that taking place. So our bylaw will actually still be, assuming they remove the bylaw or their public health order on March 1st, Edmonton will still have a bylaw in place that requires um, masking in the indoor environments. Now, I have a feeling that even though we've set those two measures as a, as a requirement to uh, advance a review, we may review it earlier than that. But truly, I think the earliest council would likely revisit is March 14th, which is our next city council meeting. Uh, and, and in my view at this stage, I haven't seen any evidence that suggests we should remove that particular tool. We, we're at the stage now where essentially every public health measure is being removed. And um, I, I don't think we as a society have answered enough questions to understand what the true impacts are. I mean, for example, I think about the fact that um, in the last 120 days, we've seen over 20 times the number of people die from COVID than we would see in an average year from the flu. And so we're still in a pandemic, right? Now, the question is, do these public health measures help prevent additional death, or at this point, because of the rate of vaccination, would it really make a difference? But that there's been no information shared about that. And so that's why I'm uneasy to remove that tool, because this disproportionately impacts seniors. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the notion that, I, at least I don't think I'm ready yet, based on the information to say that we should be willing to accept a substantially higher number of death of our seniors um, without understanding if there's a way to try to help that. And again, maybe we're at the point now that there is nothing more we can do to prevent those numbers uh, that we're seeing, the, the amount of people who are losing their lives. And if that's the case, then let's make sure that information's out there and, and make sure it's well communicated. But right now, it just feels like we're removing public health measures arbitrarily without any real um, data to back that up. I hear you. We don't have too much long to go. What gives you hope, Andrew? Sorry? What gives you hope? What do I hope? Um, what gives hope. me hope? What gives what me gives hope? hope? Well, you know, I, I think, and I, I actually talked about this, on, I, I wrote like a, a Twitter thread about it. Uh, well, I said, what brings you joy about a week ago? And, and But when I think about hope and what gives me hope, even at a time where we have a war going on in, uh, with Russia, where we have the pandemic still raging, um, where we have this, this tension that exists uh, across the country, um, I still have hope because most of my conversations, most of the people that I talk with on a daily basis feel optimistic, know that there is still light at the end of the tunnel. They know that we are still far more um, together than divided. I, I, I think there's this notion going out that, oh, the, you know, this country is divided. It's not. There's, there's a very passionate group, a small group of people who have different views but as a country, I, I don't think we are. 
I don't think we're divided in the way people think. And so I have a lot of hope because I continue to talk to people every day who have hope themselves, who want to do what they can to help make their community better. And, and that inspires me. I have hope because, you know, I still think about groups like the city of Edmonton youth council, this group of 13 to 23 year olds in our city that um, are making policy recommendations to the city about how we make things better, who are actively working each and every day, volunteering their time to build a better city. That gives me hope. So I, I have hope because just like every other day, I see, a, I see a, it's a city full of people wanting to make things better. And while there will be days that we don't accomplish that, there are going to be far more days where we do than days that we don't. And that gives me hope. As a counselor, do you get time to read? Uh, well, so my, my free time, I, I read a lot of council reports, but, mm -hmm. and so because of that, because of all of my readings on council reports, my free time is not so much reading books. I like to play video games and I like listening to podcasts. That is my way to disconnect, uh, uh, uh when I need it. Okay. So what podcast should we all be tuning in to listen to? Which is your favorite podcast out there? Well, and, and see, I, I don't know if everyone needs to tune into it. I listen to a lot of video game podcasts um, uh, because again, it's my, it, it disconnects me. It gives me a different uh, break from other things. So there's a website called IGN and they have a, a host of shows that they do. And I like listening to them. So I listen to the show called Game Scoop and it's a, it's a weekly roundup of the video game news. And, and so I don't think everyone needs to listen to it, although it's, no. really entertaining. it's um, not thing, but... But, but I love it because it, it lets me, um, it vitalizes you. Yeah. Disconnect a little bit and, and, uh, and recharge myself. Got, got it. I want to say thank you so much. Your counselor, Andrew Nack. Um, from Ward Nakoda Iska, I want to say thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Support your girl by following our social media handles, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. We're at Ladies Corner.